Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today, we are here for the fourth episode of our movie series. We are talking about the one, the only, the one with the whales. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Star Trek The Voyage Home. (laughs) (laughs) It really is the one with the whales. I mean, that's the best way to describe it. I feel like that should be the tagline. Like, Star Trek The Voyage Home, subtitle, the one with the whales. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like every time, like this week when I was telling people like, oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to watch The Voyage Home to prepare for the podcast. Every single response was, is that the one with the whales? (laughs) (laughs) Literally even watching it with my partner. She was like, we're on the whale one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my husband wanted to join, but we had a friend come over and they both sent me love when I got home and was about ready to watch it. They were like, oh, have fun with the whales. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this week we go and hang out with George and Gracie in the 80s. Yeah, oh man, it's just beautiful. And yeah, I'm just so excited to dive right in like Spock. (laughs) (laughs) Good one, Ashley. Yeah, so before we get started, Rihanna, did we have anyone say anything good about us this week? (laughs) Not this week, but I pulled from another week. (laughs) You were rifling through the archives. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, our shout-out this week is from the wonderful Temporal Trek podcast. Yes. And a while back in January, (laughs) I found this wonderful notification that we got on Twitter that says, Finish the pilot season of the Dura Sisters podcast. Now to get my boil on and binge the next one about family. Hashtag 99, hashtag Star Trek podcast. Yes, I was wondering if that was a boil reference. I he yeah. It sounds like he went full boil. He went all in on listening to our podcast. So that's so exciting. Right? And for those of you who don't know, Boyle is a character from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the wonderful show that just ended actually on NBC, I believe. And so... Did it have a final season? It did. I didn't watch it? It's... You need to watch it. It's very relevant. They talk about COVID and police officers. It's very good. So I was just watching this with my sister-in-law because she started it from the beginning. So I was just rewatching like season two recently. O-M-F-G. Wow. Sorry. I know. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm very excited to see the finale and to go full boil on the finale as well i'm about to um rihanna is it okay if i leave the podcast early and go finish (laughs) brooklyn (laughs) guess i'll talk about spock by myself it will become a spock podcast if you do that no no i won't (laughs) let you quite have all the reins (laughs) 
I gotta so, talk about McCoy. So. True. Yeah. True. <laughs> so thank you to the Temporal Trek podcast for that wonderful shout out. You are an awesome podcast. I just love all the stuff that you tweet on Twitter and the pod itself is amazing. So thank you for recognizing our pilot series. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we were, I think, having some overlapping episodes when we were doing our time travel series with the uh, Temporal podcast. And I remember we had a lot of good conversations on Twitter when that was happening. So go check out their podcast. Thank you all for your great comments. And if you love our podcast and would like to be featured on an episode, please comment or DM us on any of our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we would love to hear from you and get some feedback about how you feel about our podcast. Yeah, it's very exciting. I just love getting to hear from you all because it sort of helps me realize we're not just talking into a void yeah. every week. So true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no void to be seen in this week's movie. I mean, this movie is all charm. So before we get into that, Ashlyn, I want to ask you, what is your first memory of The Voyage Home? Oh, man, a great memory. So, I mean, once again, we are still in Georgia. (laughs) We are still on spring break from school um, as little children, me in middle school, Rihanna in elementary school. And this one really stuck out to me because I truly think we binged all of these movies back to back to back. And I remember laughing out loud multiple times throughout this movie. And something I thought was really cool that really stuck with me after the first watching was I thought it was awesome that everybody got their own part to play. So like Sulu, Chekhov, Ahura, all the people who sometimes are shoved to the side in these movies really get to shine and get to do something fun. The other scene I always remember is when Spock jumps into the tank to swim at the whale safety zone (laughs) safety zone what's it called Sausalian you would just say whale institute at the whale institute in Sausalito I also like whale safe zone (laughs) (laughs) gotta be safe around those whales but one of my favorite lines ever is Jillian is like having that speech about like we don't know what the whales are saying like I don't know but they're singing and it's beautiful and then this lady's like maybe they're singing to that man And so oh, I remember so good. like truly like cracking up at that moment. And I just remember feeling happiness and joy the entire time I watched this. That's Vienna, awesome. Um, I I'm, love that. Thank you. I'm wondering what you remember. Like what were your first impressions after you saw this movie? I mean, it was easily my favorite one because it featured a lot of Spock, which is always a good prerequisite for me. Also, I could tell mom's excitement was really infectious, I remember, and so just her being excited and like making her little squeaky noises and doing little dances when things were happening really helped me to get into the mode of it and to just feel like, wow, this must be an awesome movie if it's bringing out our mom's inner child. And so that was really fun to see. And I think you're right, Ashlyn, I just mostly remember the humor of it and Particularly, I remember the nuclear Wessels scene. I could not stop thinking about it. Chekhov, it was always sort of a lower tier fave of mine, but still someone that I just adored and I still do to this day. And so the fact that he got to shine so much of this movie was really amazing. 
And I'm also just rooting for little Pav the whole time. So I think that really stuck out to me also because I didn't really get the significance of Russian asking about nuclear vessels until later, but that scene cracked me up because it's just so funny. There's nothing like it. And it really just hits all the funny bones of like my humor at the time. And so I remember it just feeling like God tier humor. Like there is nothing funnier than this movie. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we were really in the sweet spot age-wise for this type of movie, and I think I'm still like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old every time I watch it because oh, yeah. it's just so funny and so relatable. No, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not relatable. You don't relate to going back in time to save some whales? I don't. What? I don't. I agree with you, Rihanna, that I think this was really the movie that cemented my love of Star Trek because... Wrath of Khan was what got me really excited about the series, but then this one really brought it home for me. And now that I'm such a big fan of Rocky, like Rocky Balboa and all those movies, I kind of feel like the third Rocky movie gets me the same level of, of hype as watching Voyage Home. You know, it's that's something amazing. that's like funny, but cute and inspiring and something that's just so comfortable to watch. But yeah, I love that. I think I have this movie to thank for really taking me to the next level of Star Trek love. Yeah, I have to agree. I think what you said earlier, Ashlyn, is so important about the camaraderie of this film and how we get to see all these characters shine in different ways. It really sends it over the top for me. And it makes me realize this isn't just a franchise about Spock and Kirk. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with the director of this movie, which of course is Leonard Nimoy. So this is now his second debut for being a director. First, of course, being Search for Spock. And I feel like he really shines making this type of movie. Like it seems like he's more of a comedic director than Mm -hmm. dramatic. And Search for Spock, you know, still a great movie, but I think this one shines because they were able to add humor into it and Nimoy was able to maybe be more of himself, you know, and make the kind of film that he wanted. And I think he had material that was just fun and something that's easier to sort of play around with and to make really great. And of course, they didn't have to use a bunch of green screens or sets. They could just film in San Francisco or in... LA, you know, depending on if they're on location or not, which they mostly weren't. But I think that that really helps cement sort of the fun of it is also just the contrast. Like I think he played really well with the contrast of having a literal alien walking around and all these people from the 23rd century. And it's just really fun to see him sort of ham up that dynamic, get to talk about things like this free speech movement at Berkeley and get to really get into San Francisco history as well as Star Trek history. Yeah, Rihanna, you're totally right. Well, and just like franchise-wise, Starfleet Command is in San Francisco. And so it's cool that they go there anyway. You know, that's going to be the future home of Starfleet Academy and and just Starfleet. So yeah. in, in the world, it's really cool for them to be there. And then in real life, you probably guessed it, the reason that they wanted to film on location was because it's so much cheaper. And so coming back for this, I'm going to start like talking a little bit about the history, if that's okay Mm -hmm. with you. Um, Of course. So coming back to make this movie, it's pretty much the 
third movie in this weird trilogy that we have. Mm-hmm. Even though there's been four movies, no one has mentioned the name V'ger since <laughs> the first movie. <laughs> no one talks about Ilea, you know? <laughs> True. So really, this is the end of our trilogy that we have. And so... Once again, when they were getting ready to film it and kind of putting all the pieces together, Shatner did not want to come back until he was given $2 million for this movie and the promise to direct the next movie in the franchise. Oh, no. And it's an odd movie. I know. (laughs) (laughs) An odd number movie, I should say, but also an odd movie. But anyway... So that's uh, that's why we have Shatner in this movie. He was being Nimoy-like and digging his heels in, didn't want to come back. But you can't, even though you really can't do a movie without Leonard Nimoy, you absolutely can't do one without Shatner. So they no. had to get him back. They had to promise him that, okay, whatever, Bill, you can direct the next movie. They didn't know what they were getting into at that point. But no. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of really fun facts that I want to throw out. So... Of course, we know Jillian, who is the whale biologist in this movie. Catherine Hicks is the actress's name, but they weren't originally going to cast her. Originally, it was going to be Eddie Murphy in this role. What? <laughs> Wait. <laughs> the one obsessed with whales? Yeah, okay, so he was going to be an astrophysicist at Berkeley, who saw that the Klingon bird of prey was in orbit. Because you know how at the beginning of the movie, they like aren't cloaked when they first get there? So he was going to be the one who saw them and then like contacts them and was going to kind of be like the Earth person who's in the 80s interacting with them instead of Dr. Taylor. But when he read the script, because he reached out initially to Paramount and was like, my dream is to be in Star Trek. Please put me in the next movie. And when he read the script, he was so pissed because he wanted to be on the crew of the (laughs) like Enterprise crew member. (laughs) Wait, but like, buddy. I don't know if he was like familiar with what was happening. Like the crew was clearly on the Klingon ship and they weren't at Earth, but he forgot the events of Search for Spock. I think, I mean, honestly, you probably could have gone a totally different direction with the script and they could have been back, you know, and stayed in the future and gotten a new crew, whatever. But that's not the path that the writers wanted to go. And so when Eddie Murphy read the script, he said, nope. said never mind i don't want to be in this movie anymore but i mean can you imagine how much fun i mean it's already a a fun movie but it would have been like so amazing with with like a top tier comedian like that that would have been amazing well and that was when he was really like at his i wouldn't say at his prime because i feel like eddie murphy's always at his prime eddie murphy was in trading places beverly hills cop harlem nights the Golden Child. I mean, oh man, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> I've yeah, s- I've seen all those. So. Uh, totally. <laughs> but anyway, sadly, he did not join us for this movie. So instead, Leonard Nimoy, during he held auditions for this female role that they, because they of course rewrote the part. And he thought he saw a lot of chemistry between William Shatner and Catherine Hicks when they were doing scenes together. And he said, okay, "Okay, let's run with it. They have good chemistry, which to me seems like they were trying to get a romantic thing going. Yeah, what? I'm really (laughs) going to argue that later in the podcast. Uh (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so they uh, they got their cast together, and this movie didn't come out too much longer after Search for Spock. This one came out in 86, and of course, Search for Spock came out in 84. So once again, they're having these Star Trek movies come out just two years apart, which, can we go back to that, please? Yeah, I would love that. I, I mean, would. granted, we are having shows come out, like, two months apart, so that's pretty amazing. Oh, also, Prodigy came out yesterday. I haven't I seen it, but so far, the buzz on Twitter is amazing like lower decks amazing okay i'm so excited to watch it yeah i want to talk about it more but we can't we have to talk about we gotta stick with the movies (laughs) (laughs) well ashlyn before you go on i want to bring up such a funny point because you talked about eddie murphy and his role it just seems almost too coincidental that you know later on in voyager they have the episode where they go back in time and Sarah Silverman is the one to recognize Voyager on her devices or whatever and then is the one to sort of make that contact and be their 1990s liaison. Yeah, I think they completely recycled this idea and I mm-hmm. was thinking about Voyager when I was rereading that about Eddie Murphy. Yeah. It's, yeah, it just it's makes so, so much sense. Like it's got to be just like, okay, we'll use it for another plot down the road. Yeah. <laughs> I also just want to say that I read Star Trek movie memories written by William Shatner, and this movie is what I remember most of the facts from. Nice. And so I'm going to be hitting you constantly throughout the pod with some hilarious behind-the-scenes knowledge. (laughs) Oh my god, those are the best kind of knowledge, so thank you. Another interesting thing, I've read excerpts from Nicholas Meyer and Harv Bennett about how they wrote this movie. And basically, they split it in half. So Nicholas Meyer wrote the part at the beginning before they go back in time, and then he stopped, and then he finished the movie up where... So basically, everything in the future is written by Nicholas Meyer, and everything in the past is written by Harv Bennett. Interesting. Yeah, and I I feel like you can actually tell that it's different writing styles and just like totally different vibes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, can we talk about the beginning of this movie? Because I remember, this is something I forgot to mention, but one of my other first memories of this movie is being so bored in the beginning of this film because i'm sitting around waiting for the whales waiting for something cool to happen and they're just like first at a court and then they're like in a control room where it's really rainy and glass keeps breaking like it's just not interesting enough for elementary schooler to keep her attention caught you know and so i did find the tone shift to be so weird in this movie and it makes sense you know you're going completely back in time completely different vibes but still it was just bizarre to me how much the movie changes once we actually are back in the 80s yeah i could not help but think that this reminded me a lot of the motion picture because i feel like there's a lot of really slow scenes like they're watching the whale probe for I, I think like an hour. <laughs> you know, you hear the like, what, 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 like the loud. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
feel like we could have been the like sound effects for the- <laughs> well, and, well and real quick we watched this movie also with our mom and she said that that sound gave her nightmares so i guess back in the day that was like really scary that I mean, well pro yeah she said when she was a kid like just that noise was kind of freaky and i i mean i agree yeah and it's the, terrifying the way that it's causing like hurricanes on earth and, and yeah. all the water's like dripping on <laughs> glasses breaking on the consoles yeah <laughs> I, I just kept thinking v'ger because it's like another big scary mysterious thing is coming towards earth and messing everything up and our crew's gotta save the planet you know yeah and also, space stations always take the brunt of this, I realize. Yeah. This happens with Feeder, this happens even with Khan. <laughs> like, geez, these poor space stations who are like on the lookout always, of course, are the first to intercept these deadly <laughs> probes or whatever. It's just, it's, you know, pour one out for them. I know, seriously. And especially like when they can't hear the signal, they like can't communicate with each other or with Earth or with any of the vessels. Yeah, so slow. It's so slow in the beginning. One thing I did want to note is that the movie first starts right away with the note about the Challenger explosion. Mm. And I thought that that was a really nice thing for them to do because this was a historically bad moment for NASA because this was going to be the second Apollo mission, essentially. Like, they were going to go back to the moon. And Mm -hmm. this was when I think NASA was really hyped up because we had, of course, the moon landing in 69. And then they were really working towards building something again and making space travel, like, really exciting to the public. Yeah, I mean, there were quite a few Apollo missions that didn't gain as much traction after Apollo 11. Obviously, Apollo 13 gained some traction, but only because of its near disaster. And there were a couple Apollo missions that followed that. But I think you're right, Ashlyn, this is a revitalization with the Challenger. Yeah, absolutely. Challenger exploded as it was going up. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah, so... I think this is a good movie, despite it being like so comedic and funny. I still think there, it wasn't like there was a lot of other space movies coming out around this time. And so I think it was nice to have that nod towards the astronauts who lost their lives in a show that really helped to get people excited about space travel, you know? Yeah. Well said, Ashlyn. It was a beautiful ode, and I'm glad they mentioned it. I'm sure that at the time it was perfect, you know, to put that in. Yeah, I think, and sometimes we see movies do this, especially if people in the lives of the movie realm have passed away, they'll dedicate the movie to them or have a little something about the real events that occurred. And I don't think we're going to see another Star Trek movie do this until we start having more people pass away, which we'll talk about later. It's very sad. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so I thought that was classy, classy move by um, by Nimoy here. One thing I also want to mention is just that when Nimoy was approaching Paramount saying, I'm going to direct this one, they said, go, whatever you want to do, please do it. And so he worked with the writers and he was kind of the brainchild behind this. And he said, I want to do a fish out of water comedy. I want to 
really pay tribute to all of these characters and I want to have some fun after the kind of hard past two movies that we've seen and I think he's he's really digging at the core of what Star Trek is because yes Star Trek deals with a lot of heavy themes and a lot of really important moments but also it's really campy and hilarious (laughs) and so particularly this era of TOS yeah absolutely and so I think Nimoy (laughs) thought like what's our favorite episode and it's City on the Edge of Forever you know it's like it's moments where they are fish out of water where they're in a space where they're like back in time or in an era where nobody knows what's happening. It's just always good, always golden. It's such a great concept and something that can, I think, be cliche if it's done poorly or if it uses too many tropes, but this is Star Trek and so they are fine to make references of themselves. We see this moment when Spock covers his ears like he does before when Kirk had to explain that his ears were put in a rice picker <laughs> in the city, you know, and so I think... In City those... on the Edge of Forever, not just oh, in yeah. the city. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> in city, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that is so important is that you have to toe that line between not being too cliche, but it's hard in Star Trek because if you're cliche, it's fine. I don't really care because... They're not trying to do other fish out of water comedies. They're trying to do a Star Trek brand of it. And that's always so delicious. Exactly. (laughs) And it's not like mean making fun of the characters. It's paying homage to them in a good way. You know, like there are so many moments like what's exact change? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Just hilarious to see. Yeah. Uh, Although, you know, who does make fun of characters hmm. or who is very mad? Hmm is this first Klingon that we meet in the very beginning. Oh, he's so mad. And this is another nameless Klingon, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, poor Klingons. No names. (laughs) I know. It's tragic. We need some more representation here, which I guess I shouldn't. (laughs) I should uh, just wait a couple of movies. Yeah, just, just wait it out. Yeah, but this first Klingon is, of course, understandably very livid of the fact that Kirk killed an entire ship's complement when he destroyed the Enterprise in search for Spock, and that he is sort of inhibiting peace with Starfleet, essentially, is what his argument is. He says that Kirk is a terrorist, even when Sarek comes to his aid and is advocating for him in this scene, even though Kirk's not even there, (laughs) he's advocating for him. The Klingon accuses Sarek of having personal bias because he said his son was saved by Kirk. And I'm like, you know, that's also true. I think that we need a fairer court who doesn't have, you know, like fathers-in-law, essentially. (laughs) As the lawyer, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so we learn from the Starfleet official that he has nine violations of Starfleet regulation. And this Klingon's just pissed because he's like, I don't care about Starfleet regulation. We're trying to broker some sort of peace treaty between Starfleet, which is huge. That's such a big talking point that I think they barely brush over in this film. And it's leading to something a lot bigger, you know, which will eventually be the Klingons joining Starfleet. But for now, they say 
there shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives, which is just the most Klingon thing I've ever heard. Like, of course they have this personal vendetta against Kirk. He's already been sort of on their hit list for a while, particularly after the events of Search for Spock. And so I think it's just a really interesting way to set up a movie, but not this movie. Like, why are we seeing this? I get it. We're seeing the consequences of Search for Spock like they did with the beginning of Search for Spock. We see the consequences of Wrath of Khan. But it just doesn't hit the same in this context because the rest of the movie is not about this. And so I really understand what they're trying to do by showing the consequences of the Genesis explosion and how it's brewing tension with the Klingons. But Ashlyn, do you think, I mean, I know that Shatner wanted to direct a movie so they knew they were going to make another eventually, but do you think that this was alluding at all to the upcoming films? Were they already like thinking about writing these scripts? Like, Why would they add this into a movie when it would never come back? So I'm wondering, I, I don't know for sure that because I feel like most of these movies, with the exception of this trilogy, they didn't know that they were going to make another one. It's kind of as needed yeah. from this point on. And so I don't think it was really about that. But I am wondering if they were building towards the start of Star Trek The Next Generation. Because mm -hmm. the season one of Next Gen started just a year after this movie was released. So they're definitely filming it at this point. And obviously they're casting Worf as, you know, a Klingon on the Enterprise and yeah. first Klingon in Starfleet. And so I think Gene Roddenberry is probably pushing them to say, I know that Gene just is only labeled as executive producer here and titled and given credit for creating Star Trek. He had no hands on this operation. Mm. But I wonder if the writers were thinking about the overall world to say, we do have to make peace with the Klingons. But I, I think it's, it is weirdly in character, and especially from what we know about everything in Discovery and what we've learned about in this early era of Klingon and Federation talks. And I'm, this is such, it seems like such a boring way to start the podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's sort of on par with yeah, the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I think that we know that the Klingon houses have not been united since Kalis's time, which is like thousands of Oof, years. Yeah. And so the trying to get them all to unite under one council, which they have, uh, is a great feat. And then to also get them to join Starfleet is another great feat. There's always Klingons who are dissenting and disagreeing with the need to have peace. And I feel like this Klingon who's at the trial is someone who's really advocating to not go through with the peace treaty. And he's using any excuse that comes up to stop these talks. Because if we think about it in context, what is Kirk really being charged with? So he, he stole the Enterprise from the Federation mm -hmm. and he went to a planet that was forbidden to go to. He broke someone out of asylum. Oh, I forgot. He broke McCoy out of the asylum. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, we're not going to come up with all nine charges, but... But he just, he killed a bunch of Klingons. Yeah, I don't know if the Federation cares about that. It's true. <laughs> Sadly, like, they don't... But, I mean, for the Klingon, at least, he obviously cares. Yeah, and but he's painting Kirk in this terrible light. He's saying that Kirk was planning to use the Genesis weapon to destroy Kronos 
And yeah. that's obviously not true. He's trying to paint Kirk as a war criminal, you know, someone who betrayed the Federation and went rogue and was trying to destroy their home planet. But of course that's not true. Yeah, and he's also trying to paint Starfleet in this light because he says that Kirk worked with you, Starfleet, to create this Genesis weapon. He worked with his son, you know, and so, I mean, it does smell like it could be this ploy, you know, so I can see where he gets it construed. But also we know that Klingons are constantly ready to fight and they're constantly looking for excuses to destroy someone in battle and so and what a hypocrite because the whole reason that christopher lloyd was out there in the first place was because that he was under orders i believe to capture the genesis device yeah and so he's accusing this klingon is accusing kirk of doing the very thing they were trying to do you know it's so true yeah such a good point so you know everyone knows it's bs and Oh, actually, Rihanna, I'm going to introduce a rule that we're going to do for this podcast because Uh there are a lot of colorful metaphors in this movie. And so I think Rihanna and I are going to indulge in some colorful metaphors as well. So if you you don't want your children uh, hearing us swear and cover their ears. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, this is some bullshit, Rihanna. Yeah. (laughs) And all of it. Yeah. And exactly what you're saying. All of this is so it takes place in a five minute scene that doesn't really matter because we know that Kirk and crew are going to get off the charges. And also, as soon as you see Sarek there, you know everything's going to be fine. Absolutely. And Star Trek loves their trials, so they had to throw in a trial scene. Of course they did. But I just don't think it matches with the rest of the film. And yeah. it feels so uptight and like they're all wearing, wearing their formal dress. All of these scenes are super long and dragged out and I'm just ready to get back to the past. <laughs> yeah, same. And I'm just like, I want to see the main crew. Where are they? And they're on Vulcan in a three-month exile. <laughs> yeah, it's taken Scotty three months to repair the bird of prey, which is amazing because everything's in Klingon. And I don't think they can read Klingon. No, and I don't think he has much help. I think there's a lot of Vulcan engineers who could help, probably. But <laughs> Yeah, where are who, they? <laughs> yeah, because we know that they didn't bring a whole crew compliment to bring Spock back to life. They only brought the main bridge crew. And so is Scotty just like working by himself? Because Spock also does not have, like he's still healing and getting his memories back and all of that. So I don't think he has time to like assist Scotty with repairs. So I got to say three months is really impressive considering all of the shit he's been put under. What I just just realized is that, you know how we complained in the last movie that Ahura didn't get to do much. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, so after, you know, she has her cool scene where she puts the guy in the closet, she says, I'll see you at the rendezvous point. And then she meets him on Vulcan. So Ahura got there somehow, like she got a ride (laughs) to to Vulcan, but then she decides to stay with the crew for the whole three months, even though she wasn't stranded there. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. She wasn't technically part of the breaking out. I guess the holding someone at gunpoint made her have to be a fugitive i don't know oh okay i yeah 
yeah, I bet you're right, actually. <laughs> yeah, I guess, but it's still a little bit like, wow, that devotion is amazing. <laughs> I mean, because they could have, yeah, you bring up a good point. I guess they could have left at any time, but they had to repair the ship. Because it's not like Vulcan is like this planet out in the middle of nowhere. No. Um, like, they could have gotten a ride home, but they are fugitives. And probably they were in asylum while Spock was recovering. And also, it was probably a really nice break for them. Because I feel like, especially Kirk, has had a really stressful past couple weeks. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he's lost so many people. And Carol just disappeared. She's still never <laughs> mentioned again, I have to say. They don't even have a funeral for David that we see. Literally, the only moment we get is when they're saying goodbye to Savick, And she said, David died most bravely. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, and it's nice that she explained that he saved herself and Spock. But yeah, okay, This is, here's a fun fact. So in one of the original scripts... It, there was a scene where it showed that Savik was pregnant. And what? so you were supposed to assume that she was pregnant with Spock's child <gasps> after Pon Far on Genesis. <laughs> and, oh, God. I'm glad they took that out. Well, but did they, Rihanna? Because she's just staying on Vulcan. Why isn't she going back with them to the Federation? Because she's an officer. I, I mean, was wondering this too. I was just... wondering if she was resigning or if she was just hanging out on Vulcan or like what was going on with that. I mean, it seems logical that if, you know, she didn't want to go back with the main crew, she could have gone back anytime to Starfleet. It's not like she was helping Spock recuperate. True. So oh, I think, Lord. I mean, if we ever see a Spock baby anywhere, we know it's from Savick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a sentence. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> I know, but some of my fun facts are not all uh, pleasing. Not that fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Ashlyn, my favorite scene <laughs> is this one we're about to talk about, which may surprise you. It's not back in the past. Rihanna, it's not my favorite scene. How do you feel about this scene? How do you feel? <laughs> Tell her. I feel fine. Mm. Actually, no, I feel ecstatic about this scene because I'm human and I can say so. So I say so. And I love this because, first of all, this is one of the many glimpses we get into Vulcan culture in the beginning of this movie. We get Spock in his beautiful, beautiful white robe <laughs> that he just got out of the sonic shower. Rihanna loves these robes. I'm literally obsessed with them. They're gorgeous. I think Sarek also is having a great outfit in this movie, too. All the Vulcans look amazing. Even oh, Amanda yeah. looks Amanda, amazing. Amanda, yeah. who's in this movie, finally. 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 They were able to get her. I guess they gave her enough money, or she asked for a little enough about. I don't know what happened, but they got her. And thank God they did because she is really the glue to this scene where Spock is trying to figure out why in the hell is this computer asking him how do you feel? And at first this computer is asking him about stuff with the Klingons, is asking about something that happened in 1987, which I thought was such a cool little easter egg, getting us ready to go back in time. And asking all of these different equations, all this stuff, it's very reminiscent of what they probably took exactly for Star Trek 2009, 
was the Vulcan Learning Center. You know, this is how Spock was raised. This is how he grew up. He's used to these sort of high pressure, very exciting, or not exciting. To me, it's exciting. (laughs) Getting to answer all these questions at once. He's just showing how he's already mastered these skills again. It's such a good way for us to introduce this new Spock, this Spock 2.0, shall we say. And he is already like better than everyone, (laughs) you know, in these scenes. Like he's smart, he's really thoughtful about his answers, but also he is sort of back to square one with his feelings. And this is something that's a little bit devastating, but also I know this is Spock and I know that he's gonna find his way back. And so this is his first sort of instance of that is taking on emotion again when the computer asks, how do you feel? (laughs) And Amanda comes in right during Spock's moment of distress of like, I do not understand the question. And she gives this great speech about Spock and his role, you know, as being both Vulcan and a human. I love that she talks about how his human crew members came to save him, even though it was illogical, and even though the needs of the many do outweigh the needs of the one, they still risked everything to come and save him. And I think that action alone is very impactful for Spock. I think that he understands instantly that these are people I'm not going to find anywhere else. These are unlike anyone I've met on Vulcan since my rebirth (laughs) and all of this. I don't know. It's just such a gorgeous scene to set up this friendship arc that we're going to get throughout the film. Well, this is the benefit of being the director is that you can make your character be the only one that has an arc. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, that's too true. What's Kirk's arc in this movie? getting some whales yeah yeah (laughs) and a lady it's just be the hero you know it's literally it's a flat arc he's just saying his arc is listen to spock actually (laughs) yeah actually and in the past two movies i feel like kirk has gone through such this transformational journey but he's just not in this one but i think it's more spock focused but i don't think it's bad like i don't miss those moments with kirk no you know particularly because we're tiptoeing into shatner era that is a little more scary for me because he is starting to be more Shatner and less Kirk as these movies go on in my opinion and I feel like this one still very much clings to Kirk but without sort of the baggage of aging I feel like because this movie chooses to go back in time we sort of get a stalemate on his qualms or worries about aging and also he has Spock back he's just mutineered he feels great you know I think that this is sort of Kirk in his happy place and going back in time like we said that's one of our favorite original series episodes and probably some of his favorite missions he gets to have a blast and so I think a lot of this made him feel young in ways that maybe the other movies haven't so far yeah of course and this is also this movie takes place in a very short span of time i mean from a like future perspective it takes place in like 10 minutes you know literally (laughs) Um, yeah (laughs) maybe like an hour yeah i agree i'm not complaining either and i think it's fine that we don't talk about kirk very much in this movie and you know you mentioned that amanda grayson is here we have jane wyatt playing amanda grayson this is the same actress who played amanda in journey to babel i figured yeah she looks the same and what's great about this 
is they got her back because Nimoy wanted her back. Thank and you, Nimoy. Because he knows that Spock has a family, and especially if they're starting on Vulcan, like his family has to be there. And I love, you know, even though Sarek is not there, but only because he's defending his son in court. And I think that's really cool. Like, despite all of their issues, Sarek will still show up for him when he needs it. Yeah, and this is one of the movies, I think, where they're at their best as far as connection. I think that their connection starts to decay a little bit past this movie, and we see it, their relationship start to crumble some more. But as far as this film, they're at a very strong point. Sarek has just gotten him back. I think that, like, like they're really on the same page. You know? Yeah. I feel like everyone should love Spock more because he's come back to life, you Mm -hmm. know? Like... (laughs) I mean, we're seeing this in McCoy as well. Mm-hmm. McCoy has a really interesting couple of scenes in this film where he is sort of enamored with Spock is the word I'm going to use, but mm-hmm. also frustrated and, you know, his usual self with Spock. But I think that there's a lot more awe that comes from it. His jibes don't seem as, you know, pointy or painful in these in this movie because he's so glad to have Spock back and he shared his Katra, so he... He knows what it's like to be, as he says, in Spock's shoes, but he yes. can never fill those shoes. Yeah, and I think McCoy sees himself kind of as Spock's therapist a little bit in the beginning of this movie because, yes, Spock has been training mentally with regaining his memory and like studying his Vulcan practices and basically kind of going to school again, making sure everything's up to date. But he has not been doing too much emotional work. This is why we have Amanda here. And I think McCoy feels like because they shared a brain for this amount of time, he feels like I'm going to help Spock get back to his old self. And I love this arc for Spock because this is something that he has been striving for his whole life is this balance between his emotions and his Vulcan side. And it's so frustrating that we're back to zero after this movie because I feel like in Wrath of Khan, he was peak harmonious Spock. He had done the most work and he was at his best self at that point, which is why he was able to sacrifice himself. And so... Now we're here with factory settings restored on Spock. (laughs) And as much as McCoy wants to help him, he is frustrated that it's not happening faster. And I think Kirk throughout the movie is very gentle with him. And there's times where they're alone where Kirk says, Spock, you used to call me Jim. You know, like he's not being demanding it like McCoy is like, be emotional. Um, Yeah. (laughs) He's just like, hey, like, I just want to remind you, like we had this kind of like different relationship before and you can call me Jim if you want to. And so I think it's sweet that they're all kind of have their kid gloves on with Spock. But I mean, clearly he mentally is very fit and I am just impressed with him throughout the movie because he really saves the day. As much as Kirk is the hero, it's really Spock. Absolutely. I also, so, okay, I think we're about ready to jump back in time. But before we do, just a little bit of plot stuff. Basically, the probe is like wrecking Earth. I think the atmosphere (laughs) is completely ionized, which is terrible. And so it's hard for communications to come in and out. And I think it's interesting that we have these scenes at Starfleet Command, even though they're really boring and really dark. I think it does set a nice base for some characters that actually are going to come back 
in other Woo. movies, which again, I don't know how much this is intentional. I don't I don't think it is, honestly. And we see Brock Peters in this movie who will later play Cisco's dad in Deep Space 9, Joseph Cisco. And so it's cool to see him getting his start. This is his first Star Trek movie. And uh, I love that. I think he's an admiral in this movie. It seems like yeah. I think he's in command of the Starbase or whatever they're at. Or yeah. whatever ship they're on. Such a cool moment. I loved seeing that. And seeing how Star Trek loves to bring back Star Trek actors. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's another shtick. Like I said, the water's leaking all over the panels. Everything's going <laughs> haywire. And essentially the president of Starfleet has to send out a distress call for the planet of Earth. And we haven't seen this before, so it's kind of a big moment. And so what a shock, because Kirk and crew have just all boarded up on the Bird of Prey, and they're going to go take it home and face the music for everything that they've done. And on their way home, they get this distress signal. And personally, I would be just so shocked and frustrated and like, what is happening right now? Like, can we get a break? I mean, yeah, they got three months of a break, but seriously, it's back-to-back action right now. Back-to-back Earth-threatening action. Yeah, and I thought what was interesting, because every other moment in Star Trek is Starfleet is ordering the Enterprise to do something because they're the only ship in the quadrant. Yeah. But at this point, they're just saying, leave Earth, do not approach Earth because we're about to be destroyed. Like, grab your buddies and everyone has to evacuate. Kirk doesn't hear any of that, of course. And this was what I was really admiring, is that he's not under orders to do anything. He and the bridge crew just start talking and they're like, well, how can we help? And how can we figure out this situation? And it's really Spock who is able to figure all of this out. He's the one who tells Ahura, maybe play the signal underwater and see what it sounds like. <laughs> and he's able to deduce that it's whale song that the probe is singing, <laughs> which is the, sure. the start of... Uh, how funny this is you know it's (laughs) like okay the serious probe is speaking in whale okay sure naturally (laughs) but i just thought it was really cool for kirk because he did not have to do that of course he's like the hero and the main guy in the story but i don't know like if i was a starfleet captain obviously i would try to help but mostly i feel like it would be damage control rather than how do we stop the probe especially when my ship is a Klingon bird of prey and I don't know how to use it. I feel like they have no way to help, but they they still find a way. I mean, they used a similar quote where essentially Kirk is like, but how do I answer when one doesn't know the question? And this is the same question that Kirk asks about V'ger. You know, he says that they're looking for the creator, but I don't know who the creator is. And so we're seeing this again. It's just hilarious to see these parallels between the motion picture and Voyage Home with this probe. But this time it's, you know, talking whale probe, normal stuff. And yeah, I just think it's hilarious because like there's no one else at Starfleet who thought to put the signal underwater. It's only Spock, really? Like, we have the brightest minds in the fleet, and yet Spock, who's not even native to Earth, still can recognize whale songs faster (laughs) than your average Starfleet officer or admiral for that sake. I mean, he spent a lot of time on Earth, and Spock is more, like, observant than the average human. Yeah. (laughs) And I feel like, honestly, we do get whales in the bay, like, on the ocean side. So yeah, but like people well, live there, and, oh, and they what, didn't realize. This. And what am I thinking? The whales are extinct, so of course, Spock yeah, didn't see any whales. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, they're extinct. 
But still, I mean, you think other people would deduce this. It just cracks me up that Spock is constantly, literally the only one paying attention closely enough to actually start creating these solutions. God, I just really do appreciate how much Kirk just trusts Spock in these moments, you know? I mean, they talk about how at the end, Spock's best guess is better than most people's facts. And this is just true for Kirk's trust in him as well. He'll take Spock's guess over anyone, any day. They just launch into action. They don't say, okay, let's like take some time to recuperate. They're like, nope, slingshot around the sun, we're going. <laughs> yeah, and I was thinking that, you know, from the perspective of the people on this starbase and the people of Earth, Kirk must seem like an angel because they are thinking, we're about to die this is it and there's no time you know yeah there's no other minds thinking about whale song but i think that they're just all in panic mode and they're trying Mm -hmm. we see people trying to seal the windows and true you know trying to figure all this out so i don't think anyone believes that there is a solution they're just trying to like do the best they can and so kirk has a moment where he communicates with the president of the Federation and it's very grainy and you can hardly see it but Kirk says we are going to attempt a slingshot around the sun and we'll, and we'll be back later. Yeah. <laughs> if I was there and I knew who Kirk was, I mean he's already famous you know and he yeah. does all this heroic stuff I would be so excited I would be the ensign like yeah like Kirk's <laughs> gonna try to save us you know <laughs> I mean honestly to be saved by Kirk is like one of the highest honors so oh, I'd be pumped. Life made <laughs> right there yeah yeah and also we get to see Majel Barrett in this scene and Yeoman Rand again yes thank you for saying this and did you know Majel Barrett so as Nurse Chapel she is no longer Nurse Chapel she's Dr. Chapel and she's the director of Starfleet Medical that's fucking amazing and that's why like all these people in this room are the like highest of the higher ups like it's it's all yeah. the highest ranking officers and so that's why she's there I'm just so proud of her wow That's incredible. I'm so happy to hear that. (laughs) Also, I think it's hilarious that they named this bird of prey the HMS Bounty. This was a Royal Navy ship from like the 1800s. I feel like, isn't this a Gilbert and Sullivan reference? I don't know. (laughs) No, this one is actually a true history reference. Oh, it's just history. Okay. Yeah, which they made two of those, but also I kept a tracker of the amount of times they mention either literary fiction or art. So I'll keep you guys informed as we go along this pod because there are a lot of references. Yeah, I'm so happy you did this. I'm very excited to see. Okay, so they do it. They slingshot around the sun. Spock does his calculations (laughs) and then they trip balls. (laughs) (laughs) I think they did a little too much LDS. Oh my god. So this is the only part of the movie where they spent any money. Is this weird <laughs> scene with the heads floating in the clouds? What is happening? Each, each crewman's head <laughs> changes it to the next, and then it turns into a human who turns into a whale. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know those, um, it doesn't make any sense to me, and I guess this is just the trippiness of the time warp, but we did our time travel podcast, and we never saw anything as trippy as this. Well, I mean, when you go back in time, your time travel experience doesn't depend on what you're going back to do, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You know, true. (laughs) Yeah, so I love this sequence. I think it really is the only part of the movie that makes it age itself, because otherwise... 
I feel like the effects are pretty good in this movie, but you can really tell that this is an older movie because of yes. how terrible the effects are. Yes. It's just hilarious. Oh yeah. my god, yeah. Well, and right before they go in, there's already two literary references because, first of all, McCoy's talking about, he's like, Spock, I want to talk science and death and philosophy with you. Essentially, he's like, I miss our old debates. I want old Spock back. And Spock's like... Doctor, I am trying to calculate this time warp. <laughs> like, you need to chill out, essentially. I have not studied philosophy yet. He's like, hang on, I'm not caught up. <laughs> like, give me some grace here. <laughs> and then McCoy goes, ministers of grace, defend us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, and then of course, Spock goes, Hamlet, act one, scene four. <laughs> and I'm like, literally same. That's me. I just quote Hamlet all the time. <laughs> Like, he hasn't had time to study philosophy, but he's memorized Shakespeare. (laughs) I mean, what a dork. We can tell where his priorities are. And then Kirk, as they're about to go to the time warp, do their shot around the sun, he says, may fortune favor the foolish, which Star Trek freaking loves this saying because we know that Gabriel Lorca says, may fortune favor the bold later on, which is a take off of it. But this is a quote from Virgil in the book Aeneas. So crazy, like crazy old poet Virgil is getting a comeback here. So that's already too, right? <laughs> even before we start the time warp. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, after this, like, confusing scene, they go back in time. I guess they all fell asleep. So, yeah. like, good thing Sulu was <laughs> just, like, head straight, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think they all passed out for a hot minute, but they all start yeah. waking up. And they realize they've completed it perfectly. It's all good. And they're just, like, in front of Earth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They didn't do the slingshot. Well, I guess they went around the sun. So they weren't by Saturn. They were literally in front of Earth in in its orbit. (laughs) And Spock is like, according to the pollution content in the atmosphere. And I'm like, ooh, yep, that's how you know. Uh, of course they know that they they hit the 1980s when they saw how much pollution there was yikes yeah Mm -hmm. and then you know they're like oh i guess we should cloak and this is when scotty realizes oh shit the dilithium crystals are broken and they're completely used up from the time warp how in the hell are we going to get back to our own time and spock has this brilliant idea of using nuclear waste, which apparently are just protons, because they're always protons, (laughs) um, to siphon off from the nuclear power plant and use that to recrystallize dilithium, because apparently Spock knows how to do that, even though it's supposed to be impossible. So that's number one on the to-do list. Well, I feel like maybe other people in the future weren't creating this type yeah of, it's true like there wasn't any waste like yeah. we were in the 80s mm-hmm. so or weren't like they were smarter than that i don't know yeah they didn't want to use like hazardous materials anymore because they actually like cared about the earth so Aww, like yeah. it makes sense you know that that these practices aren't used because they're probably seen as barbaric and not worth it to recrystallize dilithium in that way yeah, I'm going to go with that as the canon. But I I was also reminded of City on the Edge of Forever once again, because Spock is great at whenever he's back in time, he becomes familiar with what technology is available and can adapt from it. In City on the Edge of Forever, he is like using old radios to create a communicator and 
access their tricorder and everything. And this is pretty much the same thing, but on a much bigger scale. He is like, all right, I've got a plan for everything. As long as, Scotty, you can figure out how we get the whales on the ship. (laughs) Yeah, they all have their little to-do list. We've got get the protons, Mm -hmm. get the plexiglass. And that's the people who are charged to go get the protons are Chekhov and Uhura. Scotty and McCoy team up to go get the plastic or go get the glass or whatever to um, the, the container for the whales on the ship. Mm-hmm. And Kirk and Spock are tasked with finding the whales. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and Sulu's tasked with getting the helicopter. Yeah, so the helicopter that will get the glass onto the but, ship when they could yeah. have beamed it. But maybe no. I think actually the beam wasn't working, even though it was. We it saw was. It in the same scene. I don't it know why was, they but needed the helicopter because they still have transporters, so it's not like they could transport the plexiglass. It would like appear on the transporter, so then they'd have to move it bodily. Oh, I, I guess, guess I guess know? this is pre TNG where you can just beam it wherever. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But yeah, I feel like Sulu kind of gets the short end of the stick here. But I thought that was a good scene, which we can talk about in a second. Well, um, and we know that he was born there because he yes. tells us right away. <laughs> San Francisco. I was born there. <laughs> <laughs> what an iconic line from a legend. Oh, a yeah. Bay Area legend. That's oh, amazing. Um, Rihanna and I have mentioned this several times on the podcast, but we both went to school in San Francisco for our bachelor's degree. Different school, same city. And so we're very familiar with the city and it's just lovely to revisit it in this movie. Every movie that takes place in San Francisco just makes me super happy. Well, and I remember with my San Francisco Star Trek group, The Needs of the Many, we would, if people were like drinking alcohol while we were watching Star Trek, we would cheers and drink every time we saw the Golden Gate Bridge. So if I were playing that game, I would have gotten pretty drunk (laughs) when we watched the movie because we see it a lot, which is so fun. And I just do love these San Francisco callbacks. I went to the University of San Francisco, so I lived right by Golden Gate Park. And so to see them drop down in Golden Gate Park, I'm just cracking up because I'm like, that area, that big of space would be used for people to play, you know, ultimate. They would be running around. There's no way that no one would not bump into this cloaked bird of prey. It's a fairly big field. Like it's probably close to the polo fields, you know, like there's just a lot of activity in Golden Gate Park. I don't know about the 80s, but I assume so. I assume there's a lot of people who are living in the park, a lot of people who are just like chilling out smoking in the park. So I just can't imagine that no one except Jillian bumped into that bird of prey. (laughs) I know. What I love when they land that the trash people, we see them taking out the trash and uh, they get completely blown away and they just run away in fear because they're like, pretend like we didn't see this because they see the beam of light come down (laughs) essentially as they're descending the steps. (laughs) Yeah. Because... Kirk does not care about the Temporal Prime Directive. No. And for more on that, please listen to our time travel series. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right, Rihanna. That field would have been totally active. I'm kind of laughing, like, what if they landed in the Shakespeare Garden or (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Somewhere that's, like, more hidden, but still. Not enough room, though. Yeah, not enough room. (laughs) Yeah, so they land, and then they get right to work. They all are in the city, and they're right by the pier. Pyramid, the I think it's called the Transcontinental Building. Yeah, um, which is actually incidentally right where I used to intern at City Lights Publishers. Literally, like 
right up the road, you see that triangular green building. I used to pass that every week on my way to my internship and literally half the time I would just be listening to groovy 80s music, feeling like I'm in the voyage home, just like, where are the nuclear vessels? <laughs> so yeah. it was, it's a great feeling to be able to recognize the areas that they film. Well, and this is the scene where Kirk almost gets hit by a car and he's like, the guy calls him a dumbass and he's like, well, double dumbass on you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is the start of the colorful metaphors. It's pretty much just iconic moment after iconic moment. We have Spock McCoy, sorry, we have McCoy and Kirk going to sell his glasses, his antique glasses McCoy got him for his birthday. Spock and McCoy go to sell the glasses. Oh, yeah. Spock, well, Kirk too. I mean, sorry, Spock and Kirk. I don't think McCoy comes because no, he's like Jim didn't I give him to you? No, Spock oh. says. Oh, okay. Um, didn't McCoy give that to you as a gift? Oh, and yeah. Kirk's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> he's like, that's the beauty of time travel, Spock. And he will again. But that's, I'm like, it's but stupid because when Kirk, they're still broken either well, way. And when he goes back in time, it's not like his glasses are gonna be sitting on his table. I don't yeah, think. Yeah, it doesn't make no. sense. Like no, he doesn't like, really know how time travel works. It, no, he he's just like excusing this i think it erases this this development that we got from kirk and mccoy in the past two movies because mccoy gave him these special glasses i know they're broken but like he's just throwing them away now Be, uh, i know just for petty cash i mean i get that the situation's dire but it's still a little sad to see uh especially because mccoy isn't even there to be like jim what the hell <laughs> yeah spock is like hey hey um well and they get a hundred dollars for it and we were uh again we were watching this with our mom and she said in the 80s that was a lot of money (laughs) she's like that's a good chunk of change i was like all right because i guess you could fill up your gas tank for twenty dollars which just like shakes me to the core and so you know if each team basically gets 20 bucks is what kirk does kirk (laughs) does he like doles out cash to any to everybody And um, they each get like 20-ish dollars. And uh, I guess, yeah, if you can get a whole tank of gas, I mean, I fill up my car for like $60 now. So yeah. I, that's like tripled. Ugh. That's crazy. I don't want to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> so much right? money. Yeah. Well, and of course, then they try to get on the bus. And it's just the, uh, the beautiful exact change moment where, of course, they wouldn't know this. Like, even though Kirk's a historian, even though... Spock is clearly well-versed in the era. There's still just those little minutiae that you're not going to get from a history book. Like, oh, and buses took only the amount that they were provided. You know, like, of course not. That's not going to be oh, a thing. and Rihanna, they were not prepared for this time travel mission. You know, like, <laughs> I feel like normally when they go back in time, they're like, okay, computer, make us some outfits. <laughs> literally, know? that's half of what they do. Yeah, and so in this yeah. one, they're literally walking around like wild people in these crazy outfits. But I also think that because they're in San Francisco, they fit right in. Nobody Absolutely. even looks at Spock in a weird way because they're like oh it's San Francisco. I've seen a guy in a robe <laughs> that wasn't Spock <laughs> in my four years there. I feel like I was lucky if I got to see people with clothes on honestly. Thank you. There's still so many naked people just hanging oh, out. Oh yeah. Yeah Absolutely. it's very free love and this is after the you know the free speech movement that they keep talking about that spock was in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which honestly the idea of Spock like being a free speech 
hippie at Berkeley just tracks. Like, everything about that sounds perfect, and I would love to see, like, an alternate universe where this happens. Oh, I'm sure there's a fic about it somewhere, Rihanna. Just yeah. Just hop on uh, AO3 and you'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I... I do love it. I love to see the old Muni transportation buses. Like, they're also sort of the older kinds that sort of are, like, the novelty ones that you ride now in the city um, that you take down market or whatever. And so it was fun to see them finally get on the bus to go to the Whale Institute and, um, like, to see just how the Muni looks exactly like the sort of older versions of the F that I would take downtown or yeah, something. I'm like, this I, is beautiful. I couldn't believe it. It made me actually question how much money the city has because those buses look exactly the same as the ones I used to take to work. You oh. know? <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, yeah. geez, this is an ancient bus. It's from the 80s. <laughs> so to my knowledge, there is not a, a bus that travels across the bridge. That's, yeah, a, that's what? a muni but you know whatever they need to do for I mean, the movie yeah, is fine because like not even there's not a, any sort of uh aquarium or institute or anything in Sausalito it's supposed to be in Monterey in real life so obviously they're taking some art artistic license here yeah understandably because they want to still keep it bay area representative and Monterey's too far <laughs> so well, they were like you know let's just stick it closer and Sausalito's beautiful I mean if you're ever in the area you got to hit both go to Sausalito and go to San Francisco but yeah. Monterey is like a good two hours south of yeah. the city so you have to make you have to go there for a reason it's not just hopping on a bus and go across the bay Right. But that's what Kirk and Spock do. And it is fun to see, you know, the Golden Gate sort of like flashing by through the windows and stuff. They do a good job with that scene. And they do the best job with this guy who's just rocking out on his jukebox the big old (laughs) jukebox i mean literally the amount of times that i've sat on the muni with loudest music someone's playing from their speakers or someone has like um a backpack that has like an attached speaker oh like i have nightmares about those times where i'm like exhausted coming back from school at like 9 p.m and there's just people blasting their music and i am constantly wondering i'm like where is spock to do a vulcan grip because i'm so tired and why don't they just put in their headphones so this is just so quintessentially san francisco that like i've seen people tell off other people for playing loud music and they do not give a shit. Yeah, normally, <laughs> so. the, normally the bus driver like will make an announcement like turn that shit off, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I also think we kind of see that Spock is like st- still doesn't really have his marbles because <laughs> 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 I think if bef- like pre-search for Spock, if they had gone back in time, I feel like they would have been a little bit more careful about the prime directive and, you know, not letting people know that they're from um space in the future because spock doesn't even think twice he's like this is loud pinch like all right and then i love that everybody claps too because there are those moments are real when you're on the bus and there's that one super annoying person and once they leave everyone's like ah (laughs) relief at last and so i can imagine if someone got knocked out (laughs) 
<laughs> they're clapping like they're not even like stop the bus like get him help <laughs> no they're like nice thank you well yeah i mean it just it's such a vulcan attitude too that like it it just tracks for spock in the era he's in he doesn't even question it and this is also the scene where they have their conversation about the colorful metaphors and how Kirk says, Kirk says, if you're not cursing every sentence, people won't pay attention to you. And I just think that's such a hilarious line because Mar- our mom immediately after went, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it really, you know, I think it does show that that can be true. And it is sort of true of this era. And I remember like even having professors that if they cursed, it was like they were God tier. Like I gained so much respect for them if they were just like cursing in class and like be on the edge. And so I just love that Kirk has that line because it, it feels very on brand for this era, even for this now era in the twenty in 2021. And I think this is what gives a lot of people fuel to hate Discovery is because mm. Kirk has this whole like holier than thou, we don't swear in the future. And yet Discovery, you know, Tilly's like, fuck yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and everyone's swearing. So I'm just like, lol, it's fine. Kirk doesn't swear, but... <laughs> yeah, I think he puts a standard that, like, is not true for every ship, bro. Like, everyone in Enterprise was just like, you jackass, like, even Archer. Well, so I'm I mean, like, come on. high key, even McCoy, like... <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe he just says, damn it, because that's all that could be allowed in the 60s and 70s for Trek. But, like, come on. <laughs> we know that in the background, he's just swearing all all over the place. And I love that Kirk says, if you don't swear every other word, you'll never be recognized. Because then Spock takes that literally, and he starts yeah. swearing every other <laughs> fucking word. <laughs> <laughs> like, he has some truly just iconic lines i mean when he says that they are the hell not your whales or uh he truly i mean like you said he takes this to heart and one damn minute admiral you know and so i love this because he integrates it into every speech it's still he's still being very respectful of kirk but he says one damn minute (laughs) and so it's just something i adore so much about this era spock too is that he has this sort of naivety around him that is sort of charming it reminds me of when we first get to know data and how data's not up to date with like human vernacular and slang and you know metaphors and all of these complex human terms that we use and spock is sort of in this same place as he's learning human culture again and what a way to learn culture than going back to the 80s (laughs) i know i love that I mean, his journey in this is he's trying to reconnect with his emotions. And so he goes to the best place for him, which is like, you know, us. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Oh, absolutely. I also want to do a quick shout out to Kirk R. Thatcher, who was the guy who flipped off Kirk and Spock and who was listening to music because he's actually an award. He's an Emmy award winning writer and producer. What? Yeah. And uh, this was a tiny little cameo that he had. He's known for directing, like, basically all the episodes of The Muppets. He's, like, the Muppet guy. Yeah, so I... Wow. Also, his name is Kirk, too, so I think that's cool. That is so cool. Wow. Yeah. Um, So they they go there. They uh, go to the Institute, and this is not an aquarium which i thought it was it's like a whole like whale studying institute oh yeah yeah it's it's exclusively for whales i mean (laughs) (laughs) 
that's literally what she says is it's exclusively devoted to whales, which is exactly what Jillian is. She is devoted oh, to whales more than anything. <laughs> literally. Oh, also to count to uh, add to our uh, count of literary references, Kirk brings up two Jacqueline, Suzanne, and Harold Roberts. So ah, two more about the swearers, apparently, of the, the era. The giants. <laughs> And we're getting a Friar Tuck reference as well soon, so we're racking it up. <laughs> oh, can't wait. Um, well, I know I already talked about the scene in the beginning because it's one of my favorites, but as they're going through the tour, I noticed that Kirk is more and more interested in Dr. Taylor and not as much like focused on Spock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think... Uh, Kirk is just natural, you know, he's a natural flirt. I don't think he can turn it off, honestly. And so he sees a pretty woman and he's like, hey, so like, and and it works out because he wants to know more about the whales. Mm-hmm. And so he's using his place on the tour to get close to her. Like they're, <laughs> they're having conversations, like the whole tour group is going downstairs and Kirk is like, so when will they be moved? And she's yeah. like, soon. And she's like tearing up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and like, um, when they have this little moment where this movie becomes a PBS docuseries about yes. whaling, um, like, they have this moment and um, it's gross. this person's like, is this, uh, are whales dangerous like in Moby Dick? Which, another reference. Uh and of course, she's like, no, not at all. Whales are gentle creatures or whatever, <laughs> um, because she's the whale stan of this movie. And she then says, you know, like, they are not the whale's greatest predator. Can anyone guess? And the Kirk is like, man. <laughs> and she's like, and she's like, exactly. And I'm like, oh, my God. I love that that Star Trek is now like because this is so typical for Roddenberry his stories for the writers of Trek in general that they have to have a little bit of a a political not even political but just like a human's or like a, a rights standpoint you know i mean they had they always have little I mean, of course, in the original series, a lot of it was heavy handed where they wanted to talk about politics and culture and ethics and all of this stuff. And so this is Star Trek being Star Trek and adding in that flavor of also while we're at it, let's advocate for whale rights because whales are dying out and let's make this movie kind of a PSA while we're at it. I love that, though. Yeah, like, as same. much as it's heavy handed. I kept thinking, I wish, well, this is kind of, we're going to get sad here, but I kept thinking, like, I wish the world had listened and watched Ugh. Star Trek Four because, and this is something else that really stuck with me after my first watching of it, because I'm, you know, a middle schooler, I'm not really, like, aware of the world, and I honestly didn't know that whaling was a thing, and I still yeah. don't understand why people kill whales for their blubber, like, uh, it's so awful. And also, the videos of them gutting the whale is like really <laughs> gross and yeah. terrible. And so, for me, this was a this was a whale PSA. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine for people in the '80s who are watching it for the first time that this might not be. I, I mean, I have no idea how like knowledgeable the world was on it, but I feel like so much of the time, environmental data that comes out is shocking to us because. Uh, we're not always totally 
aware of what's happening with our planet. And so it's why it's so important to listen to scientists and to always be active in the role that you play on this earth because it's really important. And yeah, so for me as a kid, I was really moved by this movie and the whale side of it. And I think also we had just started recycling in our house. And Mm -hmm. I think in general, I was kind of having like an environmental awakening. And so this fit like right in (laughs) to Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I just... I want to thank this movie for that too, because it's a great message and oh boy, are we going to hear it a lot? (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I think that often, you know, Star Trek does discuss human rights, which is so important and obviously essential for us to live in harmony on earth, but we don't get a lot of animal rights moments and they're often put to the side. And I think low key, the whale probe itself is a animal rights activist, you know, saying, yo, are these species still alive? Like I got to hit them up. He's looking for species. And so I'm wondering um, how, kind of, I'm sorry, did you just gender the probe, Rihanna? I did just gender the probe. <laughs> <laughs> they are, <laughs> are wondering, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> I <Whoa>. shouldn't assume. <laughs> Um, this probe, I'm wondering, like, first of all, who built this? D- what? Rihanna, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. But like, my, th- my fan theory is that this probe was created to go to different planets to see if endangered species were still alive. <laughs> and if not, destroy. Like, it seems like, oh, such a weird concept. Like, I gotta talk to these whales or I'm gonna blow up this planet. See, I... Or, like, make it fall into natural disasters. I think because the whale... Or I think because the probe kind of looks like the whale, I'm Mm. wondering if it's, like, a whale planet that it it came from. And it's, like, really advanced whales and they're, like, just checking up on Earth. Because it seems like... Like, it's been here before to Earth, you know? Yeah. Maybe, uh... Maybe the whales and lower decks came from that uh, whale planet. Honestly, yeah, I'm here for (laughs) that. Maybe they sent the probe earlier on. Yeah, and they're just checking And then joined Starfleet, yeah. (laughs) I mean, honestly, it could be like whale Starfleet, where they wanted to make first contact with the whales on Earth, but there were no whales. (gasps) There were no whales. (laughs) Or like, but okay, so does this mean all the whales are gone or just the humpbacks? Because that's also really niche. Like niche probe vibes because, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Also, it could be the Zindi. You know, they have like an aquatic species. Maybe they (laughs) built a whale humpback species probe. But we know the Zindi because that was like a hundred years ago. I know. Oh, anyway, I just constantly laugh at this because it's such an incredible plot (laughs) that is never explained about the probe. I'm cracking up about how you mentioned this, like, specifics about the hunchback whales because... The hunchback! (laughs) Wait, 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 what are they called? Humpback. (laughs) They don't have bad posture. (laughs) That's just how they're built, Ashlyn. Okay, yeah. So I was cracking up with how specific it was about the uh, humpback whales specifically because you're right. I mean, the only reason they come to that conclusion that they need humpback whales is because the probe is speaking humpback whale. Yeah. But I feel like 
I feel like they probably all are extinct because what if they had like a giant, like a killer whale and it could <laughs> They like... said, no, we don't want to talk to the killer <laughs> yeah, whales. I, We've had I, enough I, conversations yeah. with them. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know. Like weird but maybe you, you would think that the killer whale would be able to still communicate with the probe i don't know well and i'm thinking maybe it like called all the other whales and all of those whales answered but the humpbacks weren't answering and so it's like what did the other whales be able to tell it like there's no more a humpback no because they're extinct they don't even know about they're like what the hell kind of whale language is this no but i mean like wouldn't the other if there were other whales on earth talking uh-huh. to the whale probe wouldn't they be able to tell the probe that the humpbacks are oh you're right because the whale yeah. they wouldn't even know they're not even aware oh my god you're right oh yeah. maybe there's like an elder whale story <laughs> that like passed it down okay well <laughs> we're like really getting deep anyway in. yeah <laughs> Star Trek lore that we'll probably never know, like with many things. I feel like probably one of us should have read the novelization for this, and maybe they explain it, but I don't know. I mean, it's the movie. We don't know. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, so Spock jumps in the tank. It's amazing. (laughs) He's mind-melding with Gracie, and I just love this scene of Nimoy, like, in his undies, swimming around. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just amazed about Spock, too, because Vulcans come from a desert planet and they don't don't generally learn how to swim or don't find it necessary. But I think if you're in Starfleet, you got to learn how to swim. And if you're half human, you're spending enough time on Earth and it's oceans, you're like, OK, I might as well. So Spock is an excellent swimmer and I'm just impressed by him. He also has very durable clothing that does not look wet remotely when he gets out of the tank. <laughs> Yeah, Spock is wet, but his clothes are dry. Like, his face is dripping, but everything else is dry. <laughs> they didn't want to drench Nimoy. They were like, here, we'll just spray your face. <laughs> I mean, it, maybe it's like future Vulcan technology, you know? Where yeah, it's really just, good robes. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so Spock is totally a whale advocate in this, too, and I love it because I think... As much as a weirdo, he comes off from Jillian's perspective. I think that she really respects the fact that he's thinking about Gracie. And, sh- and since he knows she's pregnant and all of this stuff, he is really considering them, you know? And I think that's something that uh, sort of gets Jillian on their side. I mean, she picks up some random people she met at the tour. Oh my like, God. she is no. a wilded out here. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's my question is why would she. Besides just that the movie needs her to, why would she understand these people? And why would she believe anything that they're saying? And I, I mean, she says, like, I have a soft spot for down-on-their-luck cases. That's why I work with cases. whales. Yeah. yeah. Weird line, also. <laughs> like, Weird what? line. Like, that, she just, like, you work with whales because you pity them? Like, what? I think she's that one friend who's, like, obsessed with her job and, like, has to like drop it into conversation every 10 every, seconds every 10 seconds because yeah all of her dialogue even if it's like not related to whales she brings it back to be about whales yeah. and like she has a bumper sticker that says i heart whales <laughs> like no like, jillian you love whales we get it girl yeah um yeah it's just a lot and I I really want to like Jillian more than I do every time I see this film. I'm like, maybe she'll grow on me more. And she never quite does. It's not like I dislike her at all. I think that as far as the women interest 
go or the like single women in these movies who never who were never seen from again in the following movies I think she's a pretty solid character but I wouldn't put her above Carol or no. Savick even for that matter oh no way I like Carol and Savick much more and yeah I I think I I respect her you know, but I'm not like I, I don't care that we don't see Jillian ever again in the Federation yeah. when she goes to the future with them. Like, eh. okay, right. I, I don't need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely not. Yeah, I, so I do think that the combination of Kirk and Spock, because Kirk is very charming and he's very nice and uh, normal, and Spock is so abnormal, but he's clearly very intelligent. And like you said, mm-hmm. advocating for the whales. And so I think weirdly it is convincing to her. And she's like, hmm, I sh- guess I should trust them and pick up these randos and then go to dinner with this rando. <laughs> yeah, and drop this other rando at a park. At a park. <laughs> like- and, and she just rolls with it. She's like, oh, he's going to hang out in the bushes? Like WTF? <laughs> yeah, literally. I mean, and the scene is just so funny when they're in the car and – um, she's like, you you fellas like Italian? And Spock goes, no. 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 <laughs> Every time Kirk is like, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, like, of course, the LDS line is so funny. I mean, it's just iconic. Like, this actually is a pretty good excuse for why Spock is, a, his, his brain is sort of all over the place. <laughs> is that he's doing too much LDS. LDS. I mean, do you think Spock got exiled from dinner because he said he didn't like Italian? <laughs> <laughs> I think that he would have gone and been the awkward third wheel if not for, like, Scotty calling him back to, or for, like, him being needed to what was he even doing back there? I don't know. I think he Preparing was, the ship. <laughs> yeah, just continuing to help fix it up. Because, I mean, there are not pe- many people working on it. I don't think yeah. anyone's working on it in the beginning. And so they drop no. Spock off and he's working. And then, because at the same time during the day, Scotty and um, McCoy are at this plastics company. And they're talking to this guy who always looks like Newman from Seinfeld to me. Newman! But I know he's yeah. not Newman. He just, I don't know, similar, like, look. Um, and yeah. 80s vibes, I think. But Yeah. Uh, so they go, and Scotty pretends to be this professor from Scotland who is leading... Who's traveled millions of miles! Thousands! Thousands! Thousands of miles! <laughs> <laughs> He pretends to be this like really famous professor who uh, wants to see a tour of the facility. And I just love McCoy in this scene too, because once again, we we kind of have the same dynamic where we have one person who's totally normal and is like easily able to communicate with the people of the time. And then we have Scotty who's just kind of like off the rails a little bit and is terrible at like remembering that they're in the (laughs) eighties. I I think that uh, it's really a glow up for McCoy because the other times that we've seen him go back in the past, he has not fared well. Assassins! (laughs) Yeah, he's been drugged, mostly. Yeah, so he really was like, I gotta redeem myself, I gotta... And I, but I also love, yeah, cause we've got the beautiful McCoy snark all the way through these comments, and then Scotty demotes him to assistant. <laughs> <laughs> he says, uh, don't bury yourself too deep in the part. Yeah. 
love it. Well, and uh, when the, Scotty, of course, is trying to use the keyboard, it's the very famous "Hello, computer," because he's talking to the mouse. And yeah, the guy. I I feel like this poor guy. You know, he's been surprised that there's a famous guy here to tour his facility. And he must be just so fed up at this point where he's just like, just use the keyboard. Like, are you serious? The year is 1986. Why are you trying to talk to this computer? That's not possible, you know? And <laughs> He's just sort of baffled by this guy, by Scotty. Yeah, he's like, what the heck is going on? And then he is totally fine with their visit once he sees the formula that Scotty has pulled up. Which again, oh my god, oh my god, we've talked the about this ethics. a lot. But, <laughs> but like, I mean, destroying the timeline. <laughs> How do you know he didn't invent it? I'm like, well, and they don't. We even, do know they don't even that he didn't. It. Like, I know there's no Google right now, but like, they could have gone to the the bird of prey and like looked up the history. Uh-huh. Maybe he wasn't in the Klingon Maybe database. Not. I don't know. <laughs> I guess he wouldn't be. I just, yeah, Scotty. I know. But honestly, I do love the way they set up the ambiance for this scene for the plexiglass, you know, and the whole um, warehouse and everything. And he's even got a little I quit smoking badge. You know, it's just fun things from the time that seem like perfectly placed. And I love that the secretary, I say she's a secretary. I don't know her actual job, but this is the 80s. So Not I'm now gonna... Marilyn. <laughs> yeah, Mar- yeah, exactly. But poor Marilyn. <laughs> it's just so Madeline, perfect. Madeline. Madeline. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, where she, yeah, yeah, where he's like, not now, Madeline. I just love that. <laughs> the comedic timing for this scene particularly is so good. And I just love sort of these rare pairs that we get to have uh, matched together. We get McCoy and Scotty, who basically never interact because unless McCoy's like healing his burns from engineering no. or like saving his life from engineering or like hearing him from radiation from engineering like it's a dangerous job so obviously he gets to see mccoy a lot but they don't get that much interaction time particularly in the show itself because mccoy's always just hanging out with kirk and spock and so i do love the fact that they pair off people besides of course kirk and spock everyone else are in these fun pairs that i wouldn't expect like if i were writing this movie i'd probably just go basic and have Sue have Sulu and Chekhov go together and have Ohora and Scotty go together because that just is sort of like okay that's what happens those are your sort of natural pairs and so I'm really glad that the writers and Nimoy switched that up and said no let's play with these dynamics and have these different characters interact and it's so fun me too Rihanna I love it and I also love in this in the plastic scene you know you're talking about the ambience I love that Scotty is able to explain what he needs kind of in like kindergarten level you know Mm -hmm. um, for the audience because I'm also like wondering what the heck they're doing there and I don't know the science involved but I love that he explains you know like okay you need six inches of glass to hold this much amount of water but in the future you only need like a centimeter or whatever to hold all that water and so I feel like that's a really real like grounded metaphor or grounded example where I really can appreciate whoa that does seem really advanced and that would be really cool if we could do that in the future. I mean, I'm, I'm not like an aquarium person, but like for the aquariums, that would probably really help. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, transporting them back to the future. That would be very helpful. Transparent <laughs> aluminum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, 
McCoy's like far beyond the dreams of avarice, which is another, uh, it's a movie, movie reference this time. What movie is McCoy referencing? It's like a silent film from the 20s. What, McCoy? Because McCoy, I guess, I thought they would do sort of a reference to like maybe his uh, Western era, but I guess they couldn't fit that in. (laughs) Oh, I also, before we move away from the scene, I just want to note that James Doohan, of course, is a veteran. He's a Canadian soldier who served in World War II, including, like, he was in D-Day in the invasion of Normandy, and he was wounded, and so he only has nine fingers. And so um, whenever you see transporter scenes on the original series, he kind of holds it in a (gasps) weird way. I always made fun of him! (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) I know, it's like, oh, Scotty, you can't beam with one hand. I'm like, everyone else uses three fingers. Why are you using two hands? I know. Wow, now I feel terrible. No, Rhiannon and I used to joke all the time, like, what's wrong with Scotty? But actually, it's because he only has nine fingers. And uh, so I thought it was really interesting that of all the characters to have to type on a keyboard... It's James Doohan, who doesn't have all his fingers. And so they had to, like, sometimes you see him picking at the keyboard, like, with two fingers. And then sometimes you see him clearly fake typing. Yeah. Um, But they have to do some interesting filming to not, because I didn't even notice that he didn't have all his fingers. But, yeah, so that's another little fun fact here. Ashlyn, thank you. Yes. Um, so our last pair are looking for the nuclear vessels. And yes. what I love about this scene is that, y- I mean, for, usually for movies, when you're filming something, you block off the whole street and you, sh- you know, stop traffic and you film a scene for an hour and then you let traffic go by. And, you know, but normally there's no pedestrians, uh, nothing like that. But Star Trek said, nah, we don't need to do that. That's like too much money, you know, to like pay yeah. the city to do anything. And so they just fucking filmed on the street. And so yeah. that lady who ends up talking to Nichelle Nichols and Walter Koenig, mm. she says, oh, like, cause they're like, where are the nuclear vessels in Al- Like, where are they? And she's like, oh, I think they're across the bay in Alameda. And Chekhov's like, that's what I said. I said Alameda. <laughs> but that line was totally improv. And Chekhov, like, he was totally improving there with her. That was just a random passersby. And everyone, like, all those weird looks they were getting, that police officer was a was real, real police officer. I was officer. wondering. They, yeah. they told him that they were filming a movie and that the, he wasn't actually, like, a Russian looking for yeah. nuclear vessels. Um, but that was a real police officer. And so... I love that scene because it's just like a real glimpse of what the city was like at the time, which is basically the same, you know. Which is basically ignoring the random mumblings of strangers. Yeah, like don't engage with what... Don't look at them in the eye. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like this lady's wearing a weird outfit with a bib. (laughs) Like he's got... Chekhov's got this crazy jacket on. Yeah. I mean, I guess he he looked pretty fly in his jacket though yeah and her just looks great in her starfleet outfit she's the only one in her uniform still because apparently they had no changes of clothes on vulcan for them because she came right from earth and didn't pack a bag so no one packed a bag so they're all in their search for spock materials yeah yeah. so funny but so they do end up getting there. They go across the bay. You, we see them like climbing on rocks. So like, how did they get what? there? Did they swim? Like, I know they didn't swim. Did but they th- train to go to take? Like, they must have taken a train to Oakland or, but, or like, a ferry. I I don't know. But they're they're yeah. on the rocks and they break into the ship, which is called the Enterprise, which is so funny. Which I love that the Enterprise is technically in this film. Then I mean, it is at the end too. But yeah, I love it. Um, 
uh, Walter Koenig, I, I love reading his story about making this movie because he um, he said it, he was delighted to be in this movie because he, he, as an actor, shines best in comedic moments. And so we see Chekhov, he's able to grab the thing that they need for the um to recrystallize the dilithium and they're able to be mahura out but not the uh the radiation is blocking the signal and so they're not able to beam Chekhov out which is just so typical i mean does like i know this is a klingon bird of prey so maybe their transporters are a little different but come on everything under the sun interferes with transporters. So I feel I like they just start to need start to put more science into transporters because ion storms, radiation even. <laughs> I feel like radiation's all over the place if you're in space or in like Starfleet in general. Can we figure this out? Well, I think in this case, I'm just gonna defend it a little bit. I mean, Chekhov is standing on a nuclear vessel <laughs> like <laughs> yeah yeah it's true you know so i think there he's like standing next to so much radiation and oh man i feel bad for all those officers who are gonna die in like 20 years of cancer oh, right um, but yeah anyway so <laughs> moving right along yeah uh, check off is interrogated and he just like gives nothing away um except um when he distracts the guards by throwing his communicator at them <laughs> which is like you're handing what a legend handing the oh. government advanced technology <laughs> don't worry it doesn't work because the radi- radiation oh, i think yeah, he throws his phaser. i think yeah it was the phaser that doesn't work yeah. okay you're right that makes me feel better but still it's gonna work the moment they get out of the radiation zone i probably. don't i don't i'm just like what's happening um <laughs> but i also want to just add a little context because i think most of our i, I don't know what the age ranges of our listeners um but like for me and rihanna you mentioned this in the beginning i did not understand why it was funny that a russian was look like why a russian would be looking for nuclear vessels yeah um, i'm just gonna say vessels for the rest of the pod literally um, yeah and so this was of course like the 80s was during it right smack in the middle of the cold war with russia Mm-hmm. And so my, like my mom talks about, they would always do drills. Like what if a nuclear bomb hit the country? What would they do? Like shelter in place type of scenarios. Like people had bunkers and things like that, that they would hide in in their houses. And so it was a time where America was really under threat of possible war. And it, I mean, I, I feel like we're living in a time of crisis during the cold war was, was definitely a time of crisis as well, because uh, t- either country could destroy the other and it could start a World War Three. you know? Like, it's very stressful, so... I know, and um, right before the eugenics wars, like, whoosh, good thing. Yeah, well, and we're, <laughs> we're coming out, I know the, um, you know, the era of uh, trying to track down the communists ha- was, like, happening more in the 50s, but I still feel like it would be very suspicious to have a Russian, like, uh, like, is this a communist, like, literally trying to infiltrate our country? Like, is this a spy? Like, what, what what's happening? <laughs> right. And, like, also, we know that the guard calls him, like, a Ruski, you know, this use slang and stuff. And so we know, like, I think that does, without being too over the top, show that era as well as the nuclear wessel scene you know and of course that he's under guard when Chekhov gets injured we have this beautiful chaotic chase scene and I just got a shout out to I think did Jerry Goldsmith do the soundtrack as well yes I think so I can double check 
because this music, this sort of imperial marching chase scene music is so fun to hear. It's very like reminiscent of like Russian music, I thought, or like military music. And so it was just, a, it was fun to hear the like director of music or whoever like wrote this music have just a ball making it all sound really cohesive and just fun like very groovy tunes all the way through this film oh yeah so this is um this is leonard rosenman who did most of the music for this so yeah shout out i I was really thinking about russian marches also when chekhov was running away it's it's just it's fun yeah so this was what i was going to mention um that walter kendig uh talked about in the star trek memories book is that he loved filming this scene because the first couple times they did it um it didn't really look like Chekhov was running that fast um and (laughs) because he was trying to be slow for the camera you know Mm because they have to follow him and uh like on a like a a railroad track kind of thing where the camera just slides along it while he's running and Mm -hmm. um so the so Leonard Nimoy was like okay Walter like you have to run faster because you don't (laughs) you don't look like you're running from the government like hurry it up and so he was like I can run very fast and Leonard Nimoy was like lol okay run as fast as you want like it's all good and he fucking like destroyed he ran so fast that no one could catch up to him and like the camera couldn't grab him or anything and so it turns out he's a little bit of a speedster (laughs) well i love this because um canonically Chekhov is a track star what yeah whoa i'm sorry if i hurt anybody's ears i am (laughs) flabbergasted he's a track star so he won the starfleet marathon so i shouldn't say track but he won like a bunch of starfleet races what yeah and so i might be wrong in thinking about prime checkoff i know that alternate universe abrams checkoff won the track star or was a track track star (laughs) so i just want to hope that also prime Chekhov is a track star and that's why he's so fast i feel like nero wouldn't have affected if Chekhov was a runner or not you know so i think (laughs) we're probably safe there yeah exactly Um, okay this is amazing because yeah Yeah. i mean that he's he just ran away really fast. And so they had to redo the scene because he had to figure out just how fast to run. <laughs> That's amazing. I love his running in the scene. You can tell that he is a runner. Like I, I used to be a runner. I ran cross country in high school and I am still a runner, I suppose. Anyway, um, but I'm like, okay, nice form. He's moving his arms enough, but he's still got kind of a funny <laughs> run because yeah. you can tell he's sort of trying to like jog a little. <laughs> So it's just so good. And once again, we have this theme of Chekhov getting really just fucked up in these movies. I mean, he's everything under the sun has happened to him. So and this is a constant in the original series, too. I mean, he's constantly getting injured. And so my little heart goes out to him because also it goes out to Ahura because I know she feels so guilty about like, quote unquote, leaving him behind. But I'm glad, you know, that, like, obviously, yes, they won't treat Chekhov well, but they wouldn't treat Uhura well either, and so I'm like, you know, that's okay. They can, obviously, they're going to rescue him either way. This is the thing is, like, even when Jillian is realizing, oh my god, the whales are getting 
they got shipped early and everything and she's running to go find them and tell them and everything Kirk's like we can't leave we're missing a man you know and that's just like duh we're not gonna leave a man behind especially our sweet child Chekhov <laughs> like they're also protective of him and so it, it's just it's good to see them all have to band together for a bit of a hiccup because honestly overall things have been going so smoothly they found two whales one who's already pregnant they were able to get the plexiglass sulu is having a blast (laughs) looking at this helicopter i mean obviously we know that sulu is a pilot we know that he is very skilled and we also learned that he like practiced on these type of helicopters as a kid and so i just imagine a little baby sulu like piloting a chopper and looking great doing it so piloting like a 300 year old chopper like yeah what what? well and sulu he's just very cool with this guy because he knows all the lingo and he's able to kind of like pilot to pilot have a nice conversation with him yeah and sulu talks about oh he flies something a little bit newer and the guy says oh well then what i have must be ancient to you which is, you know, hilarious. And Sulu He's like, says, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, you have no idea. And he said, it's old, but interesting. And so yeah. I, I love that because I feel like that really just ties in who Sulu is, where he's not at all like, oh, this thing is ancient. He's very excited to fly it. And <laughs> Well, this is such a trend with so many of our pilots. I mean, Tom Paris particularly comes to mind because he also is really enamored with old uh piloting equipment essentially i mean that's why he does his captain proton stuff and helps to create the delta flyer but i'm even thinking about detmer and like how all of these pilots just have such a passion for like machinery in general and it really comes through for sulu because he just doesn't get a ton of time i mean he gets screen time all the time especially in original series you're always seeing his face at the helm but mostly he's like Course laden, sir. Warp factor five. And that's like all he does, which is amazing. But it's like, I want to see him do some badass piloting. And here we get to. And it's just so fun that Sulu gets this little arc. Oh, for sure. And also, just like actor wise, George Takai, how little he got in this movie prompted him to start pushing the writers to get the Excelsior in later movies because good. he said, I'm so sick of not doing anything. You have to get something good for me. Um, yeah. And so I love to see this start of this glow up where even though he doesn't have a lot of time in this movie, it will lead to something better in the future. Absolutely. That's so important. Um, and Rihanna, so you, you just brought up, you know, this choice they have to make between saving Chekhov and going and getting the whales. And I thought this was an interesting point of the movie because it does stop for a moment and they do have to have a discussion. And it's you know Jillian's like whatever it doesn't matter but I love that the everyone's offering their suggestions like oh but what about Chekhov what do we do Kirk and Spock is the one who I think is or is the most persuasive because of who he is and what we've seen this whole movie is like logical Spock no emotions it doesn't matter but when one of his friends is in trouble, there's no question. And let's remind ourselves that the fate of the earth is in balance, you know? Yeah. Like, if these whales get killed, it's going to be really annoying. They're going to have to, like, I guess, search for whales in the ocean um, yeah. is their backup plan, you know, right. to get these, to bring other whales to the future. 
Um, which I don't know why they didn't do right away. It was just like, because you know how on the Enterprise, you can just like search for things on Earth and be like, where are the whales? And they're like, located, Captain. And so I'm, yeah. I'm thinking like they could probably do this on the Bird of Prey. Maybe but... they didn't have a whale finder specifically <laughs> enough on but Bird of Prey. I, I feel like you can search for life, you know? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. So I'm you should not, be I'm, able to. I'm not mm-hmm. really thinking about it, but... Um, Anyway, yeah. So I, I think it's really great. And this is when you start to see the return of Spock's humanity and also his memories about who he was before his rebirth. And so yeah. I thought that this was a turning point for Spock where he chooses Chekhov over the whales. And then they have this amazing scene at the hospital. And this is where McCoy has his time to shine. And yes. this is, again, like one of the most amazing scenes. We see they're all dressed up looking like doctors and McCoy walks up to this old lady and he's like, what's wrong with you? You know, so gruff, like no right. bedside manner. <laughs> and she's just like dialysis, like a kidney failure. And he's like dialysis, like so annoyed. And dialysis, yeah. like especially in the 80s, is like cutting of like cutting edge technology. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, very painful process because it's like uh, it's something that refilters the kidneys mm-hmm. um, like manually. And like you have to. I, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's just like a pain and you're like always hooked up to something. Um, and it's like doing the filtering for you anyway. And so at this poor lady, she's like clearly suffering. She looks terrible in bed and <laughs> well, just like, cause she's sick, you know? Yeah. She yeah. Just I know looks, what she, yeah, she just looks really <laughs> sick. Yeah. Um, and so McCoy just like gives her a pill and I swear that they have pills in the future that are just like organ growing pills, you know? Yeah. They've got, got to, because uh, I mean, McCoy is always known to carry the plot in his little medical bag. Yes. You know, he carries around the almost dead serum in a muck time, like, in case he needs it. Spock's wedding, you know, like, there's just all of these times where he has a fix right up his sleeve. And I just got to think it's because medicine is so much more far reaching. And so it can cover so many grounds, I guess. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, but I, I just love it. And at the end of the scene, you know, we see her before they leave the hospital being wheeled out saying, I grew a new kidney. <laughs> and the doctors are like, it's completely functional. Yeah. And they're like losing their minds because she's this medical miracle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so they, um, in order to get into the room where Chekhov is having surgery, they um, put Jillian down on the gurney and McCoy and Kirk wheel her in into the elevator. And we see McCoy like scoffing at everything the doctors are saying. <laughs> And then once they goddamn get in... Goddamn dark... Or it's like the goddamn Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, like, why are you making all these old references? Well, but I yeah, love it. that's for us, you know. Uh-huh. He should have said to Kirk, like, it's like the goddamn eugenics wars. I don't even know. That's still <laughs> ancient for them. True. Um, but, yeah, oh, my God, so funny. And uh, so, and then once they're, they break in to check off surgery room and they like fool the police officers by saying, or McCoy does, by saying that she has gas or no, by, by saying She's she cramps. has cramps in like yeah. convoluted medical terminology. And then they get in there and they like force the doctors into the closet. Okay, <laughs> I thought the doctors, doctors were like oddly calm about being held at like gunpoint because they were like, is that a gun? what are you doing in here you know all this stuff and like they're just sort of all go in the closet they're like the hell 
like they're just muttering amongst themselves and I'm like I would be way more freaked out <laughs> but you know so I do think and this is kind of sad like commentary on our time but like for me like I've been through so many active shooter drills and things like that 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 would be my first thought is like these people are like like shooters oh, totally and so yeah. I'm not like WT like what the fuck is happening I'm like get down and hide because this is not safe. But I feel like that was definitely not as common back then. And so maybe they're just like weird. Maybe, but I Um, don't know. Yeah. I I did like this head doctor because as soon as they come in, uh, oh yeah, the, the head doctor says, why aren't you wearing a mask? Who are you people? And honestly, <laughs> especially we're in this weird part of the pandemic right now. I feel like I say this all the time. I'm like, why are you yeah. wearing a mask? Who are you? Literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we're sharing an elevator together. Why aren't you wearing a mask? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah I was like that aged super well. That aged well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, on. and like they, Bokoy also takes the time to argue the merits about like drilling sc- holes into a skull won't do anything and he's like let's we gotta go in and repair the artery and then they force him at gunpoint so mccoy's gotta first like explain why they're all in the dark ages i just love it and again like this is something we like a technique that's still used today when someone's brain is swelling you like have to open up the skull and like let it breathe until it like calms down so Mm -hmm. this is like very common and mccoy's like what the fuck are you doing (laughs) (laughs) literally yeah Oh my god. And I just love to, so Chekhov's all fixed, and everyone's like, Pav, how you doing? Say it. You know, talk to us. And he goes, Chekhov, Pavel, Admiral. (laughs) So when he's stating his name and rank, I just love that. Yeah, and I think it's funny too. We talk so much about McCoy's bedtime, bedside manner, but as soon as Chekhov wakes up, McCoy's the one who asks him, like, what's your name and rank? Which mm-hmm. I feel like maybe is standard, like, Starfleet protocol when someone probably. wakes up. I don't know. But I, yeah, I thought, I love and the For head injuries, probably. Yeah. But I love, I, McCoy's not like, Pavel, like, oh, I bet you're feeling tired. You know, yeah. like, no. He's, he's like, name and like, rank. <laughs> <laughs> And Kirk's the one, like, stroking his head and is like, oh, easy, Pav, easy. I'm like, oh, (laughs) so cute. Daddy's here, don't worry. (laughs) Right? Exactly. And they get him out of there. They have this another chase scene, uh, (laughs) another iconic music, classic, like, you know, running away from the cops. It's a good time. (laughs) Oh, it's a great time, yeah. Well, and I feel like this was definitely, like, some Keystone cop type of thing which are um i think especially in like british movies or like older movies where you have cops that are like absolutely incompetent and they're like falling around and um like being Mm -hmm. goofy and it seems like these cops chasing our friends here are like totally incompetent and like terrible at chasing them it was they're like pushing people out of the way like oh my god it's just insane amazing but they do they make it back to their ship and they go get the whales and annoyingly Jillian, you know, we we kind of grazed over it, but she hopped on Kirk as he was transporting. So she knows everything. Would you everything. do that? No, no. Like if, if you met a stranger and you saw that a beam of light was taking them away, <laughs> would you jump on them and no. whisper, surprise? <laughs> no. <laughs> 
<laughs> She's I mean, such a weirdo. I don't get her motivation. I, I will say that at this point, everything he's been telling her the whole time, like, I'm from the future, which we kind of grazed over this dinner. I just can't. Oh, yeah. I can't deal with the dinner. Um, right. But it's awkward. He's, like, holding a breadstick half the time and, like, chuggy his beer. It's just yeah, weird. it's weird. <laughs> and, yeah, we talked about it a lot on our time travel yeah. series. But, um... Uh, so everything he said is true, and once she see like he she sees Scotty like standing on top of the ship, like on top of the cloak <laughs> ship, and so I think there's no other explanation, and so I still wouldn't jump on to the beam of light, but I think right. she at that point knows this must be true. There's no other option. Yeah, exactly, and she's so determined to take care of her whales that she doesn't really care how she does it. Rihanna, you really said the thing. I think she's just so obsessed with these whales <laughs> that nothing will stand in her way. <laughs> she's very protective of them. Um, also, we missed another literary reference when Kirk's like, Hello, Alice, welcome to Wonderland. Aww. And I'm like, I want to die. I hate this. And then we also get a D.H. Lawrence reference, oh, so wow. racking it up here. Wait, when was that? Um, it's right after uh, she jumps onto the beam and Spock's like one minute admiral. And then Spock, you know, he's sort of showing off his prowess. And then they just quote D.H. Lawrence. <laughs> so in between some time there, I didn't actually put the quote they said this time, but. Wow, that's so yeah. funny. Amazing. <laughs> well, another, you know, we're about at the end here they do indeed get the whales the ship is totally repaired and they literally stop the whale they stop the whalers from harpooning <laughs> the whales like in the yeah. air <laughs> like we've we talked about this in our time travel series but god these whalers are motivated They're so motivated like, that is the fastest turnaround these whales just got jo- dropped off um and i gotta say too that this bird of prey is built to last like the klingons know how to build their shit because this this bird of prey has been through quite a lot and we don't know how long it's been operating since you know uh christopher lloyd had it either so like anyway i'm just amazed by scotty you know and everyone who is on team plexiglass and team whales and team radiation like it's just or team uh protons everyone did so well making all of this happen and of course the iconic line of scotty going captain there be whales here (laughs) i love that because i mean also it's hilarious that kirk did not think about how they also have to beam in the water (laughs) like what did you think was gonna happen here (laughs) see that's why you have an engineer on board because kirk does or uh when they're like making sure that everything's good to go um, Scotty's like, yep, it can hold 400 tons or it's like 400 billion tons. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I traveled millions of miles. <laughs> Thousands. Of... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the unit of measurement, but Kirk is surprised too. He's like, what? That's too much. And Scotty's like, um, you forgot about the water, dude. We're not just beaming up whales. He's like, oh yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I have a quick question about the whales. So they were released uh, not in the morning, as Dr. Jillian thought with, like, the fanfare media, but in the night before, 
um, mm-hmm. when no one would be around and it would be less stressful on the whales and weirdly less stressful for Jillian. Um, yeah, what? So <laughs> her co-worker was looking out for her. Um, this is, of course, famously that the scene is where she slaps the fuck out of him. Yeah, Bob really gets a smack in. <laughs> I, I just, you know, Rhiann and I, we cried laughing about this in our time travel podcast. I still think it's hilarious. Like, how, mm-hmm. have you ever been so, like, committed to your job that you've slapped your co-worker? <laughs> Please tweet right. us with your stories because I'm I, what I think only Dr. Taylor's gonna write in. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Um, but uh, so we know that these whales have been traveling and swimming around since last night, and we see on the tracker where they are that uh, on the frequency that Jillian gives Kirk, mm-hmm. and she says that they're in Alaska, and so mm-hmm. I'm wondering how fast whales go, and I'm wondering. Um, like, could they get to Alaska overnight? Like, I think that they were transported to that area. They were trans, they were dropped off. They weren't just like, that's what I think. That's what I've always thought, but I've never thought about them swimming there themselves. That's, it could be, but I feel like they'd have to get them far enough away from the bay that they don't just like come right like, the bay like swim back <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah you make a good point i bet they were and they might have had a line about that because they said they were wondering. shipped out so i assume that's oh, what they mean by that okay. yeah i bet you're right i bet you're right thank you yeah um, but still yeah so they're chilling in alaska and there's where the whalers are and thank and, god they were together too like george and Gracie are such good friends that they don't like swim away from each other that's true <laughs> <laughs> and um also when we watched this movie together, we were all baffled by the fact that Gracie did not give birth on this bird of prey. I know. Thank the Lord. I know. There's that, not enough room. That would have really been a bad situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I also asked this question to Ashlyn earlier on, but now that, you know, I want to ask it again now on the pod. What happens to a whale who's pregnant what happens to the baby when it travels into the future? Mm, yeah, it's it's something that maybe they should have thought about. I don't I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right. I don't either. Like maybe they're sort of because they're traveling on this like wave of the slingshot sun thing that they're like in the eye of the storm of time effects. I don't know, though. I, don't know. I, I just mean, don't know. I'm like, is this baby going to turn out to be some weird, like, time whale? I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. I feel like probably the baby's fine because the whales don't seem to have any effect from time travel. Yeah. And not that they're, like, checked out medically that we know of, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Dr. Taylor was all over them once they got to the future. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, they're healthy enough to respond to the probe. And that's all we care about True. really in the short term. Um, yeah. But I mean, Kirk and Spock, like none of them have any after effects from time travel. Not that any of them are pregnant, though. So who knows? True. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's interesting. Um, well, so they made it. They obviously make it back in time. The bird of prey is severely injured by V'ger. I'm, I'm sorry, by the whale probe. And... <laughs> Um, it's like totally wrecked and they go into the bay and Kirk, because all of the, like nothing is working in the bird of prey cause they are sinking. They crashed into the bay and literally like right where they just were in San Francisco, mm-hmm. they didn't crash like in the South China sea, they, right, <laughs> they crashed right by Starfleet right Academy. There. 
yeah. Starfleet headquarters. And Kirk has a very heroic moment where he has to swim. He saves Scotty and McCoy, who were down there in engineering. Um, or it was Jillian, sorry. He saves Jillian and Scotty, who are down in engineering. And uh, then he swims and has to do like a manual override and opens this thing and that releases the whales so the whales mm-hmm. don't drown in the ship. And yeah. I thought that was really amazing. And I had no idea, you know, if you've seen the Lower Decks finale, this is what Boimler does in the finale. And I forgot that this is what he was referencing. I was like, incredible. So shocked and happy. Literally, like, I just, another shout out to Lower Decks for, and for Star Trek referencing Star Trek constantly. So clever. And honestly, I'm glad that they have a manual release thing. Like, it's very helpful. Um, but damn, can Kirk hold his breath? <laughs> I know. I thought it was a really heroic scene. And I thought something that was super cute was that as soon as the water started flowing into engineering, Scotty is immediately shouting, Admiral! Admiral! And he Aww. knows that Kirk is going to come save him, even though Spock is on the bridge too. And and Kirk's like, just get out. Like, everybody go through this hatch. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go get them. Don't worry. And I feel like Kirk's kind of taken one for the team because Spock sacrificed himself the last time. And yeah. so now it's Kirk's turn. Um, yeah. So he goes, and Scotty just knows he's going to come save him. I thought that was so pure. <laughs> Right? It was so pure. Particularly, it's sort of riding the coattails of Kirk, like, kind of bullying Scotty right before they went back into the future. Because he's like, get it done, Scotty. And he's like, I'm trying, sir. (laughs) Like, he's so dejected. It's always how it is. Yeah. So he he knows that Kirk's always going to come through for him. And he does. And yeah, I do love this moment. And this ending in general is just magical because you know that this this cast is having a fucking blast. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Leonard Nimoy is grinning ear to ear. Like, he's laughing. Like, Spock is just having a good old time. Any movie that ends with the cast at a pool party, I'm just going to watch, you know? <laughs> they're splashing each other. They're, they're, Kirk's, like, dragging Spock into the water. Ahura's, like, playing around with Chekhov and Sulu. Like, it's just <laughs> iconic. And Scotty's just like, I'm wet and tired. <laughs> Yeah, he's the only one I feel like who's not very happy during this scene. <laughs> I would be miserable if I had to film this scene who God knows how many times. Yeah, he's very, he's kind of over it. Um, well, oh. and so then we finally get the resolution of the trial that started in the beginning. And of course, they're cleared of all charges except one, which was directed at, at Admiral Kirk. And that is that he's demoted back to captain, which this has already happened. Like in motion picture, you know, he gets... He wasn't officially demoted, but he does get command of Enterprise had for a while. Te- he had temporary lowering of rank, I think they called it. Yeah. And so now he's like actually demoted. But who cares? It's Everyone Captain knows. Kirk. Yeah. And this is the thing is I think Starfleet is finally realizing... There's no physical way to keep Kirk away from the Enterprise, so we might as well capitalize on it because he saves our lives a bunch of times. And so they realize their mistake from the motion picture. And we're like, oh, we should never have coerced him into becoming Admiral. Like, this is not where he belongs. And so we get to see Kirk just so over the moon. Everyone's clapping for him when he gets demoted. Like, it's just classic. Well, I mean, he saved the Earth. Like, this crew... 
they all thought they were going to die, and the crew totally saved their lives. So, of course, they're yeah, clapping. Yeah, pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know who's mentally clapping is Sarek. He's so happy Aww. that Spock did a great job. He is, and I love this scene where they get to talk afterwards, and Sarek is finally like, oh, yeah, I realized I was hard on you. I'm like, yeah, too little, too late, bud. <laughs> Obviously, they have family issues that are starting to become resolved in this, like we talked about at the beginning. Um, but it sort of reminds me of, like, a teenager talking to a, to a parent where, where Spock's kind of like, they're my friend's dad. Like, of course, you know, like, hmm. Like, I defend my friends, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Like, I just got that vibe of, like, Spock is no longer taking Sarek's shit, you know? And I really appreciate that about this moment is to say, like, there, Spock is going to be supporting his friends. He doesn't even stand in trial because he was dead. Like, he didn't do any of this. But he still says that, um, that I stand with my shipmates, you know? And I think Sarek is finally realizing that this is where Spock belongs. And this is where he's most fulfilled. And that, in the end, is all that matters to Sarek. Not about accolades or you know, being an ambassador's son, all that stuff. Yeah, I kind of got the vibe, too, that Sarek, I mean, you just exactly said it, that he's finally accepting Spock's place in this world. I think that since Vulcans have longer lives, that Sarek probably thought that this Starfleet thing was just a phase for Spock, mm. and he was gonna get over his rebellion and come back to Vulcan and be an obedient son and, you know just like work with Sarek, like, you know, help being an ambassador or go to the Vulcan mm -hmm. Science Academy or whatever. And so I, I, for us, it's funny because Spock is like a 50 year old person. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and which seems like old for humans, but you have to remember that Vulcans will live at least a hundred more years. And so I yeah. think for, for Vulcans, this is like kind of the end of being teenagers. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you know, he's finally entering adulthood and, um, or like mental, like even a greater yeah. step of maturity. And so I kind of got the vibe that Sarek was like, okay, well, th I guess it's not a phase. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh, so true. Ashlyn, you bring up a great point. And I love too that he's even comfortable enough to have Sarek relay the message to Amanda to say, I feel fine. Because obviously Spock could have just sent a little uh, communique to Amanda and say that, you know, but I think that he's entrusting Sarek with, his feelings for a moment and that's really special yes and i think this is the line that wraps up spock's arc not only from this movie but from the whole trilogy where yeah. he says tell mother i feel fine and right? I, oh, it's so it's good. so simple but so so beautiful and it says so much about him that this whale journey and dying and uh <laughs> everything that they've been through have really brought Spock back and I think I can say from like for the rest of the movies we have we have Spock again you know mm -hmm. um he's just good old good old Spock classic yeah exactly and at the very end of this movie we get to see the infamous Enterprise A so now we're starting Woo! the line of the lines of Enterprise <laughs> and they somehow built it in three months which I'm not even gonna like no not even gonna touch no, that <laughs> That's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> but they said, no ma'am, no dipshit. And they just did it. 
didn't even know that the Enterprise was destroyed until probably Kirk got to Vulcan, you know, and told Starfleet, yeah. like, okay, I revived Spock, he's alive, and also uh, the ship is destroyed, you know, just like debriefing them on what happened in the mission, I would mm-hmm. guess. So they were yeah. just like, okay, 911, let's rebuild <laughs> the Enterprise real fast. I guess so. I wow, they did it. <laughs> <Amazing. laughs> Miracle workers, yeah, just like absolutely. Scotty. Well, wow. Rihanna, I just, oh, I'm so happy. This is maybe my favorite thing to do in the world. Sit here, yeah. talk about Star Trek, and especially talk about the voyage home. It's been a whale of a time. <laughs> Good one, Ashlyn. I agree. I There's nothing fishy about this. Oh it was all God. just fun, splashing no. around in the sun yeah. with our friends. <laughs> so thank you all for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it for you. And just keep on listening because we are chugging through these movies. I cannot believe we're going on to five next week. That feels crazy. Like I... That means we're almost halfway through this series already. Oh, I can't believe it. I mean, that's oh. not technically true, but like, you know, we're getting there. We're really, yeah, yeah, we're not even halfway, but it feels like it. We're, we're definitely halfway through the original ones for sure. Oh, yeah, we're on the tail end. Yeah, the, the whale tail end. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, Rihanna, thank you for joining me. I'm just so happy. Thank you, too. Thanks for getting up at the crack of dawn. I don't mind what time it is as long as we're recording the pod. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week for the fifth episode of our movie series where Ashton and Rihanna will discuss Star Trek The Final Frontier. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. Also take a moment to check out our content on Tumblr and TikTok. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. By donating any amount per month, you can become a monthly patron and unlock our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, the animated series, and Star Trek trivia. You can find all of this and more at patreon.com slash the Dura Sisters podcast. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters podcast at gmail.com. So far, we have covered these podcast series, the pilot episodes, family, love and affection, time travel, and villains. If you haven't heard a particular series, please go back and listen to any of these awesome episodes. Social Media and Marketing by Rihanna Hurd and Ashlyn Gelman. Editing is done by Ashlyn Gelman and Rihanna Hurd. Our intro and our outro was written by Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, well, and we find out, oh, oh, sorry, it's a big spider. Okay, uh, it's fine. Go get Danny. <laughs> sorry. No, don't be sorry. Yeah, no, That's everyone terrifying. can hear my fear. I'm uh, yeah. There's a big spider. Husband oh, duty. It's, it's going down. Ew, 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 ew. But it's like definitely over there somewhere. I don't know where it went. No. I can't help you if I don't know where it is. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yep, there it is. Ew, 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 ew. Woo!